Why do you think that The Office has become now the most watched show in television five, six years after we've shot anything? Is that true? The most watched? Yeah. Wow. Why is it connecting with people? Maybe even more so now today. Well, let's, let me think about this. But why has it become such a phenomenon? I don't know. Some things just defy the boundaries of when they were made. My name is Brian Baumgartner, but most of you know me as the guy who played Kevin Malone on The Office. I just want to lie on the beach and eat hot dogs. I know, I know, on the show, I sounded a bit different, and at times, it seemed like there wasn't much going on in my head. In general, they do not give me much responsibility. But from my little corner in the accounting department, I actually was paying attention, and I had a front row seat to it all. Yes, that's what I'm talking about. And over the years, I've been asked a million times, why? Why did a show that never should have happened? I mean, we teetered on the brink of cancellation so many times. Become one of the biggest shows in television history. The Emmy goes to The Office. Last year, The Office accounted for 52 billion, yes, billion minutes of viewing on Netflix. But the truth is, the answers lie far deeper than I ever could have imagined. There is something really soothing about showing up, hearing that theme song. You're in that office with these characters that you love. Dunder Mifflin, this is Pam. It's enormously complex and beautiful and familiar all at once. You see people's fears and their wishes and their dreams and their hurts. That's why I started this podcast. To answer this simple yet endlessly complex question. Why? Why was this show able to capture people's imagination, make them fall in love, break their hearts, make them laugh, and then want to watch it all over again? It's rare. It's rare, and but we all, I think we all sensed it. We all knew. Why is a show about mostly middle-aged office workers connecting with new and younger audiences? Why are 14-year-olds gobbling it up? It, didn't, it still doesn't really make sense to me. And most importantly, why exactly do I appear in a Billie Eilish song? It's like one of the best movies I've ever seen in my life. Definitely my introduction. That's why I have to use it. Come on. You have to use your voices because, you know, that's telling the truth. Right? And those are the questions I want to answer with the help of some of my friends. I'm John Krasinski, and I play Jim Halpert. This is Jenna Fisher. I'm Steve Carell. Greg Daniels. Ricky Gervais. Ed Helms. Angela Kinsey. Stephen Merchant. Kate Flannery. Craig Robinson. Oscar Nunez. Hi, I'm Ellie Kemper. My name's Rain Wilson, and I played Dwight Kurt Schrute. In addition to revisiting memories, I'll revisit some places. So it's been almost seven years since we had the wrap party here in Scranton. I haven't been back since. To discuss what the show meant to viewers. The office gave us that amazing gift. It's still that sense of family, you know? And I think that's what we feel in Scranton. And I'll have a bit of fun, too. Welcome to the Backyard Ale House in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Let's put your hands together. When I'm here in Scranton, I will forever be Kevin Malone. But this is not just a fluff piece for the show. 
okay? I will ask the tough questions. Are we seriously on? Are we We're on seriously the... on. We're recording this. So people want to keep hearing about the office? When are people going to get sick of it? When does the backlash start? That's my question. I don't know. Is that when, when, That's when this comes out? Probably. <laughs> this is an exploration from all of us who were there. There from the very beginning. My friends. My, my family, really. I'll say it here, and, and this is the only time I've ever really publicly said this. I don't know if I really want to admit this, but... <laughs> you uh, yanked some heartstrings here that I wasn't expecting, Sorry. but I... I'm grateful for it. I love it. I'm Brian Baumgartner, and this is An Oral History of the Office. Over the next 12 episodes, we're going to take a journey to discover how the show was created, how it struggled to stay on the air, and how it continues to connect with young fans today. But before any of that, we're going to rewind to before the U.S. version of the show even existed. To start things off, I sat down with Ben Silverman, executive producer of the American version of The Office, and the guy who was there literally from the beginning. I love Ben. I do. I love Ben. He's also terribly frustrating. Is everyone ready for us in the back? Yeah. I mean, the only reason we haven't already begun the interview in a casual fashion is because you were eating a bagel. Thank you for that. All right. Let's go back in time. It's 2001, and the entertainment world looks very different. Netflix is a company that delivers DVDs by mail. The first iPhone is six years away. And if a TV show airs at 8 p.m. on a Thursday, you're on the couch watching it at 8 p.m. on a Thursday. Ben has been working in TV for a few years, most recently at the talent agency William Morris. And now, at the ripe old age of 31, he has quit that job to strike out on his own and start a TV production company. He's on a work trip to London, and he's staying with his friend, Henrietta Conrad. We were watching television, and I was literally flipping the channels. And I came on to the office. This is episode one or two, and I was watching it first, wondering if it was for comedy or for real, then quickly recognized what it was doing. Oh, is Elaine? She left you yet? Yeah. All right, see you then. She has left him. I forgot about that. Single camera, no laugh track, faux documentary with people who felt real. I'm a friend first and a boss second. Probably an entertainer third. This was the original British series, The Office, created by Ricky Gervais and Stephen Merchant. Now, it looked like a documentary about the everyday life of a needy, narcissistic middle manager named David Brent and his employees at a paper company. But it was actually a scripted comedy, and there was basically nothing like it on American television. I kept watching and started laughing, and it's really hard to make me laugh. And I was falling in love with the show right in that moment. I let them get out with murder, which they let me get out with murder. You know, the girls love me, but uh, not in that way. So. Henrietta, as it turns out, also works in TV. 
So the next morning, Ben naturally says, do you know Ricky Gervais? And she said, no, but her friend Dan Mazur did. And we organized and had dinner with Dan that night. Wait, so 24 hours after you after you see it for the first time on television, you're having dinner with someone who could get you to Ricky? Yes. Wow. And I start peppering him questions about the office, and he gives me Ricky's cell phone number. And so the next day, I call Ricky around 11 o'clock in the morning. All right, now hold up. I wanted to get Ricky's side of the story here too, so I got him on the line. I was walking down the street in London. Um, I think I was going to see my agent, and the phone rang. And I introduced myself on the phone. Hi, Ben Silverman. You don't know me. I want to I wanna remake The Office for America. I'd love to meet you. Are you in town? And I looked up and I said, right, I'm right outside Starbucks in Wardour Street. He says, yes, come meet me in Soho at the Starbucks. And he went, wait there. I'll be there in 15 minutes. And he jumped in a cab. And I spent an hour with Ricky talking about The Office. And very quickly, we got along because we both love television. Right. You know, and he truly was making me laugh, even in those moments. <laughs> right. Over, over the coffee at the Starbucks. So they're talking shop, nerding out about TV and about what had inspired Ricky and his co-creator, Stephen Merchant, to make the show. I called up Stephen to talk more about this process, and he told me they were influenced by a very specific kind of reality TV. At the time in the UK, there had been a number of shows on the BBC and other networks that were fly-on-the-wall documentaries about very everyday subjects. Like there was a, there was one about a driving school. Maureen has already failed her test six times and spent over £5,000 on lessons. You know, it was just following normal people doing driving lessons and, and driving tests. And this kind of had caught a, a wave of, of popularity in the UK. And so when we did our version, we had those sorts of shows in our mind. But these kinds of reality shows, what they called docu-soaps, they just weren't a thing in the U.S. I mean, reality shows were barely a thing. Remember, this was 2001. Survivor? was only in its second season. So in that meeting at the Starbucks, Ben was thinking... All these verite reality shows set in these workplace environments in the UK clearly had informed Ricky on what he was mocking. And I was explaining to him, we don't yet have those formats to mock. So as we look at the show... We need to ensure where the characters are grounded and where the comedy comes from can't just be through the faux documentary lens. Right. So you're pitching him, you're pitching him and you're talking to him about how much you appreciate the work and what inspired him. But you're also saying, is it for sale? No, I'm not saying, is it for sale? Because you don't sell in our business. Like it's not the shoe business. Okay. Well, It was more like he was asking, are you interested in adapting your great work for America? And would you like to collaborate with me on this process? Ben talked a good game, but Ricky and Steven weren't sure that an American adaptation could work. Here's Ricky. Mostly I'd heard of all the failures. You know, the last thing to make it before the office was things like um, Steptoe and Son becoming, was it Stanford and Son, until death has two parts was all in the family, wasn't it, with Archie Bunker. And then 
since the 70s, you just heard of horror stories where they tried to remake Faulty Towers and it was dreadful. And Stephen just felt like... I just remember thinking it was like um, training for the Olympics or something. You know, there, there were so many hurdles to you winning the gold medal, right? Then sort of you can train and then you can, but then maybe you don't make it into the team and then you get into the team, but then maybe you get injured and even if you don't get injured, you get to the, the, the line and then you don't get a great start and then you, you know, so to actually win the gold medal just seems such a long shot that I was just very, I think I was probably, you know, it was like self-protecting, you know, let's not get too excited. One of the first hurdles was that some of the rights to the show were held by the BBC. And you're watching Comedy Night on BBC Two. The British Broadcasting Corporation. The BBC is a wonderful cultural institution, but they also are a giant government bureaucracy. Got it. And it was literally like dealing with characters from the office <laughs> about the office right. to get them to move. I asked Ricky if he remembered anything about this. It's funny you should say that because when uh, we were pitching our version of The Office, John Plowman, he said, I've got one question. He said, um, this guy is the boss. If he's so terrible at his job, how does he keep it? And I said, let's take a little walk around the BBC, shall we? And he just started laughing. And he went, okay, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> so to get the BBC to move, Ben dangled a carrot. I said, "This will, we will make 25 times more episodes than you'll ever make in the UK. And it will be far more valuable to you. <laughs> right. So maybe that helped get the BBC on board? Who knows? But Ben did manage to get the rights to the show. This is how Stephen saw it. The thing about Ben was he was just, he just had a real enthusiasm. He was just really dynamic and, and energized and he, and he was passionate about the show and and the idea that this kind of weird downbeat sitcom from the UK uh, would somehow translate to America was, you know, and his enthusiasm for that was very infectious. And Ben was thinking, you know, you have those moments. At that moment, I don't know, like everything was possible. Like I really saw the transformation of television before it was happening. Now, all he had to do was find a TV network that would produce this new American office. But that would be no small task. That's after the break. At the end of this episode, if you want to hear what happens next, head over to Spotify. The first three episodes of An Oral History of the Office are available for you to listen to right now for free. After months of negotiating, Ben finally has the blessing of Ricky, Stephen, and the BBC. So he starts reaching out to pretty much everyone he knows in television trying to drum up excitement and gauge who might be ready for this incredible, groundbreaking television show. I immediately start making phone calls and saying, "I'm, are you aware of the show The Office? Do you know what it is? Do you think it would interest you? As it turned out, it interested basically nobody. I'd gone to Les Moonves. No. He passed. Gail Berman. No. She passed immediately. Didn't get it. HBO no. said, we'll never do a remake. Showtime wasn't doing shows like this. When it came to TV comedies in the early 2000s, 
it was all about friends. You know, I can't believe I even thought of getting back together with you. We are so over. Fine by me! It was not just friends. It was friends in Baywatch. I know, these vests were not designed for women. There it goes. I mean, it was like, it was friends, and it was friends in bathing suits. You know, right. that was like, that was the landscape of TV in that moment. Like, all they wanted was the next friends. They had a tried and true formula that brought in big audiences during prime time and tons of advertising dollars with them. But was there any part of this world in which The Office made sense? I asked Emily Vanderwerf, Vox's TV critic at large. So the 2000s are often called the golden age of television, but that's because of dramas. You know, that's Sopranos. You can quote the rules. You can fucking obey them. You hear me? That's Lost. Deadwood and The Wire. You come at the king, you best not miss. All these great dark dramas. And um, that didn't really spread over to comedy. There are certainly good comedies in that era. I think Everybody Loves Raymond is a fantastic comedy. It was college. I was finding myself. You found yourself on page seven of the Daily News with your boobs out. And you also have things like Scrubs. Derek, we're not married. Dude, we're a little married. I know. I love it. But it certainly was not an era when there was a lot of great TV comedy. This was what Ben was working against while he called all of these TV networks. But Ben kept calling around. And finally, he did find one network. Well, really one person who got it. A guy named Nick Grad, who worked at FX. And he knew what the show was. And he loved the show. So Nick brought it to his boss, Kevin Riley. Here's Kevin. I had heard of it. But Nick has always had a good nose for sort of what's next. He, he, he was the guy I always looked to like, is this song cool? Yeah. Okay, great. I think it's cool too. Right. And so it was one of those. Kevin was the president of entertainment at FX. On Nick's advice, he watched some of the British office and he liked it. It was a perfect FX show. Because the office was a little dark and it had a very different format. And FX was known for doing some daring, even experimental shows. Next Tuesday on an all-new Shield. Rescue Me, an FX original series. And this would have fit right in. But there was a hitch. My contract was up. I was in the middle of a lot of negotiations, and and it looked like I'm going back to NBC at this point. And NBC? Well, that was your good old-fashioned broadcast network television. In other words, much less likely to take a risk on something so unusual. But... Kevin gets named head of NBC, and I bring it up to him, and I say, would you want to do it here? And Kevin says, absolutely. Little did he know he was actually my only buyer. <laughs> so <laughs> by that time, he was the only one who wanted everyone in else all of television. Everyone else had passed. And now it's been almost 20 years. So I think Kevin should know Ben's secret. Now, were you aware Ben shared this with me? Yeah. That at the time, you were his only buyer. <laughs> I am not surprised. But of course, I'm sure in Ben's way, he had me believe, like, I think I can get it to you. I'm going to do my best. Buddy, I am covering you here. I mean, it's taking a lot, but right, yeah. Anyone in the broadcast seats were at that time would say, no way. Right. And cable, there, you know, FX was maybe one of the few outside of the premium HBO that maybe would have done that kind of material. So he, there really weren't a lot of buyers for right. that. Right. Let's examine this for a second. If Kevin Riley, in that moment, 
changed his mind, said, eh, nope, nah, too big a risk for broadcast. Our version of The Office might have never existed. But instead, Kevin decides to take a chance, and he gives Ben his pilot. Kevin's like, let's do it. Like, let's let's make it. Okay, so NBC has given The Office a pilot. Amazing. And although Ben found the show, he's not a showrunner, the person who basically creates and oversees a television show. Ben needs a partner. Now, given that there were not a lot of TV shows like this, it was hard to envision who would be a perfect fit for the job. Like, do you go for the guy who made Curb Your Enthusiasm? Pretty, 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 pretty good. Which was sort of the closest parallel. Or do you go outside the box? Ben set meetings with lots of people. And then he sat down with Greg Daniels. Well, um, so I had just kind of come off a very intense, maybe eight years at King of the Hill. An F in English? Bobby, you speak English. Before that, Greg had written for, oh, just The Simpsons. Millhouse, I gotta have my soul back. I'll do anything you want. Uh, well... Uh, Millhouse, give him back his soul. I've got work tomorrow. And before that, he was a writer on... Another little show. The Oscar pick goes to Live from New York! It's Saturday night! But in 2002, after a long stint as showrunner on King of the Hill, I started to kind of look for the next thing. And my agent, Ari Emanuel, uh, sent me a VHS cassette and it said The Office on it. And the show was completely unknown. And I didn't watch it. And he called me like, after the holidays, and he said, um, hey, I'm going to you know, send this to the next guy on my list if you don't watch it. So I said, all right, all right, hold on. I'll try and watch it tonight. <laughs> <laughs> so I popped the cassette in like at 9 p.m. or something, and I stayed up till 1 watching the show, and I absolutely loved it. I thought it was amazing, and I couldn't even figure out how it was done. You know, I, it, was, it didn't feel like scripted. It was so alive and cool. So Greg called his agent back who then put him in touch with Ben. I immediately connected with Greg. You know, I just felt his genius and his thoughtfulness and real rigorous approach. Ben is like, you know, Mercury, like he zooms in, and but also very able to draw pieces in from all over the place and make a coherent vision. The experience that we both had in connecting on this show was like about the architecture of television and the architecture of the idea because so much about it was newly conceived but we kept talking about it with a shared love of television we were not we were people who love tv and we grew up loving tv did you have any concerns with greg about his extensive um experience in the animated world partially why it was not a concern for me that he had been so weighted in animation was the characters that he had created in those animated worlds were very accessible and real in a way that the characters in the office were. Yep, these are medium rare. What if somebody wants theirs well done? We ask them politely yet firmly to leave. You know, when I got to The Simpsons, it was season, the end of season four, and the show was 
getting a little wilder kind okay. of. And for King of the Hill, I wanted to keep it contained and realistic the whole time. And I was very much of the opinion that you have to really start slow on a show. And just the value of slowness. To land the job, Greg needed the blessing of Ricky Gervais and Stephen Merchant. So Ben invited them to his office to meet. Now, at this point, Greg didn't think he would get the job or that the show would even get made. He just wanted an excuse to talk shop with the guys who made this incredible show. So I met him at Ben's office. In, the little bungalow on the Universal yeah, lot. And it turned out that, number one, they loved The Simpsons. Number two, Ricky's favorite Simpsons episode was one that I had written called Homer Badman. Homer, are all these pockets necessary? They wouldn't be if you were willing to sit in a hollowed out wheelchair. So we started vibing nicely. Right. And, um, you know, and I talked to them about what I saw in the show and, you know, how I would adapt it. Ricky and I met with a, a great deal of very talented showrunners. And the thing which, which kind of charmed us about Greg was he realized that the beating heart of the show was the romance and that people tuned in for the David Brent, Michael Scott character, that they stayed for the love affair. He was the only one that brought up that he thought it was a love story. That was very important uh, to me, the, the, the love story. In the few words he did say, and I think it was probably because Greg is naturally a quiet man or maybe he was nervous or whatever, but that was the thing I remember really being excited by, that he had dialed into that. That was the, for us, the thing that kind of clinched it. But now, Greg was afraid he wouldn't be able to deliver. Here's Ben. He kept saying to me, well, people love the British one. You know, uh, well, I can't make it better. The biggest thing that I was worried about was taking this little jewel of a TV show and messing it up. Right. And I used to have these dreams like, do you, do you know the the kids thing, um, Where the Wild Things Are? Where the Wild Things Are. I think are. he goes in, I think he gets like in a court and all the, the animals. Yes, like all the animals are judging. Judging him? him? Yes. Yeah. So I had a dream like that, like a comedy court where all the, all the good people in comedy were judging me and, you know, saying I had ruined this thing. And it was very, it was one of my anxiety dreams. <laughs> <laughs> but Ben was very determined. He was who I now really wanted to do it. And he suddenly was getting some cold feet based on the concern of adapting something so so now like critically beloved. And I said, there are millions of great books that are adapted all the time. Do you want to adapt the worst piece of shit? Or are you trying to adapt a Pulitzer Prize winning novel? I was very skeptical because everything on NBC had was multi-camera. Will and Grace was the their number one show. And um it did not feel at all like The Office. Because I don't think I can wait any longer for some of that old Jack Daniels! <laughs> Jack magic. Honey, you say potato, I say vodka. <laughs> so, okay, so I started to convince myself maybe the point of bringing The Office, I actually thought this, was, was move the ship of comedy in a direction towards something I liked more. And even if I just nudged it in that direction, maybe it would be valuable, like, flame out to do, you know, on NBC. <laughs> so even if it failed miserably, you were doing your part. Yeah, I was going to nudge network comedy or the, the main ship of comedy. I wanted to nudge it in a different direction. I thought it was kind of funny that Greg had talked himself into believing that NBC was the right place for the show. So I told him a secret. 
Ben shared with me that he pulled one over on Kevin Riley in typical Ben way because yeah. ultimately he was the only one who was interested. <laughs> like CBS oh, really? passed and HBO had said, no, we don't want to do a remake. He convinced Kevin that he was getting, a, you know, he was going to trust Kevin, but no one else ultimately really was interested. Well, that explains why Ben was so adamant that NBC was the proper home. <laughs> <laughs> Next up, Greg was fully on board. But how would he take this weird, faux-documentary British sitcom and make it work for America? So, by summer of 2003, Ben and Greg were officially teamed up. They had their pilot commitment. And Greg started thinking, what is the world of The Office? I had this whole Margaret Mead metaphor. Now, Margaret Mead is an anthropologist, right? And I think she was possibly discredited. There's a funny story about that. She, I think, <laughs> I think she made her reputation going to like Papua New Guinea or some island and bringing back outlandish tales of the courting and mating rituals of the young people there. And then somebody went to check on them like 30 years later and they went, oh yeah, that old lady, we were telling her the craziest stuff. And, yeah, <laughs> they, uh, but what I meant by it was like, the spirit of the show should be kind of anthropology. Like offices are a weird place. They have their own unique culture. Like part of what would be interesting would be to look at it like you're an anthropologist or something. As it turns out, Ricky Gervais took a similar approach when creating the British office. I worked in an office for like 10 years. And obviously that's the biggest influence, real life, being part of it, of a working office. And, you know, you start noticing that the fact that you're thrown together with random people and you have to get along. And he zeroed in on a particular kind of person that you may have encountered. Your first boss, who was, a, was an idiot. That became the starting point for the show's main character, David Brent. But Ricky had also observed a kind of corporate political correctness on the rise. There was also a PC culture that I saw come in where people were taught what to say and do, but they didn't really mean it. So um, guys like him, they knew that they couldn't be sexist upstairs because they you know, they get in trouble with HR and they talked a good talk and they talked about sexism, misogyny and racism, but deep down they hadn't changed and they could get away with that in the warehouse. So Brent was caught between two worlds because he wanted to be loved by everyone. He wanted to be a lad downstairs with the warehouse, but then he had to behave properly in front of his boss. If that sounds at all familiar, it's because David Brent was the model for Dunder Mifflin's boss, Michael Scott. And Ben had thoughts on how to connect the dots between Michael and other figures in American television history. I had a perspective on how to adapt it and where the Michael Scott character could be a kind of version of All in the Family and that he had that kind of history in American television, similar as well to... Homer Simpson. All right, here are your exams. 50 questions. True or false? True. Homer, I was just describing the test. True. Adapting some of the other office characters came naturally. That's because they were originally inspired by American TV. Here's Stephen Merchant. I was a big fan and am a big fan of American comedy. And, 
you know, certainly a big influence on us was like Cheers and the, the idea of, you know, the Cheers bar is this kind of surrogate family, which is very much what the office is, I guess, in many ways. Well, shake it, Norm. All four cheeks and a couple of chins, coach. <laughs> Take, for example, the character of Jim Halpert and his British counterpart, Tim. We used to refer to Norm from Cheers a lot, actually for the Tim character of that idea. If you remember, Norm was kind of, kind of had some sort of vague accountancy job, but he didn't really like it. But it also kind of had a very sharp, dry sense of humor and kind of quips and one-liners. And he was using humor to sort of get through life. And he was definitely an influence on the Tim character, as was Hawkeye from MASH. And so they were, those two shows in particular were, were touch points for us. So Ben and Greg set about creating their office, taking all of this in and deciding what to bring with them and what to leave behind. They kept core elements of the British version, a single camera faux documentary with the political incorrectness of it married to the real world of of the workplace. Like the British version, they set it in a gloomy office park and they found a perfect backdrop in an old coal mining city that was a little past its prime, Scranton, Pennsylvania. It was a, an adaptation of an English show and something about the North Northeast New England kind of mid-Atlantic felt more like England in certain ways. And Scranton has like a name that's kind of hard to say. It's a, it's a comedy word. It's got a K sound. And it's eh, Scranton, you know. The casting choices would be a bit different. It had to be naturally diverse because of the way America is. But the key to success, according to Stephen Merchant, was less about any of that and more about something intangible. It seems sensible to me that if they could rewire the office at all, it would just be to maybe downplay some of those more sort of cynical, sour British elements and and just dial up a bit more of that American can-do, bright optimism. At the end of the day, Ricky and Stephen let Ben and Greg take the wheel. The one sensible advice I, I remember giving to Ricky was, again, from know, knowing a lot about American TV history and the attempts to translate British shows, was often they failed when the original British people got involved. Because the British people came over and they thought, well, we'll try and do our thing here in America. And the truth is, they probably didn't know enough about America. They didn't know enough about the nuances, the subtleties of American culture. Or they were so busy, busy trying to replicate the original that they couldn't find something fresh and new. And they were often the reasons that those shows failed. So I think, in a way, Ricky and I, our biggest contribution initially was just taking a step back and sort of trusting Greg to find the formula himself rather than for us to try and kind of, you know, meddle. So Ben and Greg didn't have to deal with anyone across the pond, but they still had a tough sell to make in the U.S. Okay, here's the pitch. You know, it's it's, an unlikable lead. (laughs) Single camera, (laughs) no one really attractive in a traditional television sense. Thank you. Super awkward and slow. Yeah. No laugh track. Right. And a faux documentary. We know documentaries aren't popular. Now think about (laughs) fake documentaries. Right. (laughs) The audience has to keep that in mind. (laughs) And it's a character. By now, it's 2003. Over two years have passed since Ben first fell in love with The Office on Henrietta's couch. Pressure was beginning to mount. I wanted to get this thing made. The show is getting bigger and bigger. BBC America had acquired it. It was starting to get a little buzz within the United States as well. And the Golden Globe goes to The Office. 
Suddenly, at 40 years of age, the unknown Ricky Gervais and his awkward character David Brent were world famous. In August of 2003, it was officially announced that Ben and Greg were adapting the show. I was telling people it will be the greatest show in the history of American television. Like, I was that aggressive. I was like, there is no comedy like this on in America today. And this harkens back to the comedies of Norman Lear and that time. But not everyone was quite so gung-ho. I was skeptical. This is TV critic Emily Vanderwerf again. This brilliant show that literally changed the television landscape is going to come in and be remade by Americans who are going to make it crass and boorish and whatever. But knowing Greg Daniels was involved made me be like, well, I'll give it a shot. Okay. You know, I was like, I don't know that even he can do this, but I'll give it a shot. Obviously he'd worked on Simpsons. He'd worked on a bunch of stuff I loved, but King of the Hill was the show where I was like, oh, this is somebody who's like a great comedic mind who has an idea of how to build a TV show, but more importantly, a, a world for a TV show. I mean, the British version is a very slim slice of television. And like that felt like a good person to expand that. And while Kevin Riley had greenlit the pilot, he was still facing massive pushback from other executives at NBC. You know, NBC at that point, when I went back to then become the president of entertainment, there was still this sort of thing that lived on in the building post friends of, you know, no, no, we want funny, but they're going to be sexy too, right? I mean, we need that. And that had just made its way into comedy, which was never part of comedy, you know? Right, I mean, right. comedy was like funny, period. So that was still a little bit in the wind of like, wait a minute, this is a group of misfits. Right. So this kind of just seemed like the opposite of at least what everyone thought we needed. I had to listen to opinions of people saying, you know, Americans associate documentaries with heaviness and uh, non-commercial. It's just an obstructive format to most Americans. And you're doing a comedy through that format by its nature. And I'm just listening. Oh, my God, really? And I'm some of these people, they were professionals. But I'm just sitting there going, what do you know and what the F are you talking about? Right. But how confident were you that it could translate to a broadcast audience? Because, yeah, at the time, single camera. Mock mm -hmm. documentary, yeah. no laugh track, yeah. nothing like that was on network television. Yeah. What I felt all along for minute one is an office comedy is a staple of television. So yeah, the form is different. The tone is certainly different. The leads attitude is really different. But at the end of the day, you're not going to look at these going, I don't understand. What, what is it? Right. They're in an office. Right. And I always clung to that all the way through. Despite the misgivings of basically everyone at NBC, except for Kevin Riley, they had their pilot order, and they were ready to put all of this into action. I started this episode asking, why was our adaptation of The Office able to find its way onto American television? So here's my question for next time. Why do audiences see themselves in Jim? In Pam, in Dwight, in, God forbid, Michael Scott. And maybe it has something to do with the casting and the fact that we were ordinary-looking losers. We looked real, and we really felt like these characters belonged to us. I believed with my whole heart that this was the part for me. I believed I was the one who should play it. And I thought, if they don't pick me, then they're not doing the show I think they're doing. 
because I am literally the only person who should play this part. This is mine. In the next episode, you'll hear from Jenna Fisher, Steve Carell, John Krasinski, Rain Wilson, and of course, yours truly. I'm Brian Baumgartner, and that's next time on An Oral History of the Office. If you're listening to this episode and you want to hear where the story goes next, head over to Spotify. It's free to download and free to listen to podcasts. The first three episodes of An Oral History of the Office are available to you right now, only on Spotify. An Oral History of the Office is hosted and executive produced by me, Brian Baumgartner, alongside our executive producer, Ling Lee. It is a Spotify original podcast produced in partnership with Propagate Content. Executive producers for Propagate are Ben Silverman, Howard Owens, and Drew Buckley. Executive producers for Spotify are Liz Gately and Bart Coleman. This episode was written and produced by Tessa Kramer and Alyssa Eads. Senior producers are Joanna Sokolowski and Julia Smith. Our writer and story producer is Benny Spiewak. Assistant editors are Russell Wijaya and Diego Tapia. Our technical director is Seth Olansky. The theme song is a Story Mechanics original composed and performed by Charles Michelet and Sheldon Sinak. Additional music was composed and performed by Joe Barry. Special thanks to Margaret Borchard, Christian Bonaventura, Matthew Rosenfield, Alex Mobison, Lucy Savage, Emily Carr, and Saida Lee for production support. <laughs>